We'll read together Romans 11, verses 1 through 24. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I am talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles and I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive branch, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourselves to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root. The root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. That's true. But they were broken off because of unbelief. And you only stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness towards those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also can be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. 
After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Let's pray. Speak, Lord, for we, your servants, are listening. Speak, Lord, for we desire stronger faith and we want to obey the word. Open our ears and our hearts. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our thoughts be acceptable to you. Amen. There are few passages in the New Testament as difficult as Romans chapters 9 through 11. It's amazingly dense the way that Paul is arguing through these chapters. And I take comfort in knowing that any loose ends that are left this morning or any questions that linger will be handed over to Pastor Andrew, who will finish out Romans 11 for us next week. I think this is why he wanted to hurry things along and we could get through as much as possible. From the text that was just read, I would like us to consider this main thought. I think this is what Paul is really driving at here. And that is that God's mysterious salvation of his people shows that he is utterly faithful to his promises. Now, in order to see this, I think it's important for us to take just a few minutes and step back to have a brief look at the larger argument that we've been tracing over the last few weeks. If we go back to the end of Romans chapter 8, you'll recall that Paul ends with this amazing statement about the constancy, indeed the inviolability of God's love. Nothing, Paul says, can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. But Paul immediately recognizes a potential objection to that claim. What about Israel? Since many of Paul's fellow Jews have rejected Jesus as their Messiah, does this not suggest that God's promises are not trustworthy? Has the word of God failed? The major burden of Paul's extended argument in Romans 9 through 11 is to show that God's word has not failed and that the proper response to God's word now is trust or faith. One of Paul's key points in this larger argument is the fact that God's own word in the prophets, in scripture, anticipates Gentiles turning to God and Israel turning away from God. We can only imagine Paul's astonishment when, as a new follower of Jesus, he went back and reread his own scripture in the light of what he knew about Christ, only to discover that indeed a word about Gentile inclusion was right there in the prophets. Now that brief summary brings us to the end of Romans chapter 10, which we looked at last week. And if you'll indulge me a bit, I'd like to read that again because I think it's key. 
for recognizing the move that happens in Romans 11. Beginning at verse 18, Paul says, But I ask, did they, that is Israel, not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into the, all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. But again I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you, Israel, envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And then Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Notice how Paul goes back to the prophetic words from Israel's own scripture to understand the current situation that he is experiencing. God's word, Paul is saying, has not failed, in part because God's word itself promised salvation to the Gentiles. Nevertheless, at the end of Romans chapter 10, the situation looks very bleak indeed for Israel, because God's word in scripture, again, looks forward to a time when Israel will reject their God and his means of salvation, while Gentiles will embrace those very things. Having retraced our steps just a bit, we can now, I think, pick up the thread of Romans 11, 1 through 24. One clear question is raised by Paul at the outset of this passage, and this is the major issue Paul explores in Romans chapter 11. Look at verses 1 and the first part of verse 2. In light of what Paul has just said from the prophets in Scripture, Paul goes on, I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham, from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Given God's word through the prophets at the end of Romans 10, Paul asked the question, has God in fact rejected his people? Is God capricious? Is God a God who can withdraw his love and break his promises to his people whom he foreknew? Paul's answer is clear. Absolutely not. And Paul goes on in Romans 11 to offer two proofs that God has not, in fact, rejected his people Israel. These two proofs are, first, an argument that there is, even in Paul's day, a remnant of people from Israel who believe in Jesus as the Christ, and who have embraced Jesus as the Messiah. That's the first proof. The second proof, Paul argues, is that Israel's rejection of Jesus was actually there in the prophets themselves, and that the prophets say that this means salvation will go to the Gentiles. 
But ultimately, the prophets also say that the salvation of the Gentiles will result in Israel's own salvation. This Paul describes as a great mystery. All through Romans 11, Paul interprets the present situation where many in Israel reject Jesus and many Gentiles are embracing him. Paul interprets that situation as having been stated by God in Scripture beforehand. And because of that, Paul can say, God's promises have not, in fact, failed. The long-term story has not yet reached its end. Now let's turn then and look at the first proof just mentioned, that God's promises have not failed because there is a remnant. If we look at verses 2 through 6, Paul says this, Don't you know what Scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. And I am the only one left. And they're trying to kill me. You may remember the story of Elijah being pursued by God's own people who were following the Baals. God's answer to him is this. I have reserved for myself... 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to Baal. And so too, Paul says, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. There are those, Paul says, who are Jews just like himself. He lists his credentials. He's a descendant of Abraham. He comes from the tribe of Benjamin. Paul is a Jew. God, he says, has not rejected his people, and he puts himself up as proof of that fact. If God had utterly rejected Israel, God would have to have rejected Paul and the many others who are embracing Jesus as their Messiah. These many others, including Paul himself, Paul says, are a remnant of Israel within Israel. The fact of the existence of this remnant is proof for Paul that God has not turned away from Israel, even though many in Israel are rejecting Jesus. Now we can pause here for just a moment and reflect on this. Even in the midst of the mass rejection of God's love, Paul is saying, God is still graciously at work. God, in other words, continues to be faithful to his promises. We may not see it in the way that we think it ought to happen. But that does not mean that God is not at work. Elijah apparently had no idea until God told him that there was a remnant who, just like Elijah, refused to bow their knee in idolatry. Nevertheless, there is real rejection of God going on in Israel, according to Paul. Yet even this rejection, Paul says, is in line with God's word in the scriptures. Look at Romans 11, 7 through 10. 
What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them obtained it. But the others were hardened, even as it is written. And here comes God's word. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see, ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap a stumbling block, and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. Paul has not made this up. These are texts that come from Deuteronomy, Isaiah, and the Psalms. But what is going on here? It is important to recognize that when we look at these texts that Paul cites, in their original context, their wider context shows that this is God's judgment on a people who are intentionally refusing to obey him. God is not randomly simply blinding. God is saying, in effect, what Paul says back in Romans chapter 1, that if people continue to suppress the truth, there will come a point where God will say, if that's what you want, that's what you can have. Sometimes, God's greatest judgment on people is simply to hand us over to get what we really want. As long as Israel has continued to rebel against their God and not follow him in the way that he has said they should go, God is willing to say at some point, fine, you will not understand. And I will, as you'll recall from chapter 10 of Romans, I will make you envious, jealous, and angry by another nation that will understand. Sometimes that is the way God works. Sometimes God gives us what we want. And in the midst of that, we find ourselves stumbling, blind, in a stupor, completely unable to accomplish the things that we thought we wanted to accomplish. Indeed, when we think back to Romans 1, we recognize that for Paul, the sin of idolatry is primarily about projecting our own human ideas and desires out into the greater heavenly realms and imagining that our own desires are in fact gods themselves. And when we do that, we become slaves to our own desires. God hands us over. But let's return to Romans chapter 11. The first proof that Paul has worked through then is that God has maintained a remnant for himself. And that scripture itself looked forward to this time. The second major proof happens in Romans 11, 11 through 24. Here Paul says there is a mystery in play. That somehow in God's wisdom, God knew that by Israel rejecting their Messiah, salvation would be opened up even in the way that the promise to Abraham suggests, to all the nations, 
not just to Israel. But according to Paul and according to the prophecies that he's interpreting, that very move to the Gentiles will itself bring the salvation of Israel. Here I want to just jump ahead a bit so that you can see clearly that this is in fact where Paul wants to go and step a little on next week's passage. But if you'll move ahead to verse 25, Paul says, at the very end of this longer argument we're about to explore, Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you might not become arrogant. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles can come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. I'll leave it to Andrew to explain to us what that means. (laughs) But in the meantime, we can see that that's where Paul's second proof is ultimately going. Paul wants it to be clear that what God is doing amongst the Gentiles through Jesus was not unexpected once the scriptures are read in light of Jesus. God, in other words, has been faithful to his word. Here's how he begins. Look at verse 11. Has Israel fallen, Paul says, to the point that they stand outside of God's love and God's promises? And again, Paul's answer is emphatically no. In Romans 11, 11 through 24, Paul offers the second proof that demonstrates that Israel's own rejection of God does not result in God's ultimate rejection of his love and promises to Israel. That is fully in keeping with the word we find time and time again in the Old Testament prophets. The main argument that Paul pursues in this larger section, which we don't have time to go into great detail of, the main argument that he pursues makes the point that Israel's very rejection of Jesus has resulted in salvation going to the Gentiles. As God had promised through his prophets, and again, as God had promised through his prophets, that the salvation which goes to the Gentiles will itself be used by God finally to bring about the salvation of Israel. Paul makes it clear in this section just as he has all the way through Romans, that salvation is first for the Jews and that the blessings we as Gentiles now receive are the result of our being brought into God's family in some way. This is what his metaphor of grafting a branch onto a different tree is doing. It is explaining that we as Gentiles do not rightfully, naturally, according to God's word in Scripture, belong as part of this tree. And yet, in His grace, God brings us in. And indeed, the prophets can be said to say that very thing. This blessing that we as Gentiles receive does not, however, Paul is clear, mean the rejection of Israel. Rather, Paul says, 
those who believe can be more easily grafted back into that tree than us Gentiles who have been brought in. And for God to do that is for God to do something that in Jesus we know he can do. Bring life out of death. In light of Jesus, what Paul is saying is a word of great hope. Because if there is one thing we know about God, it is that he is the one who raises the dead. For the branches to be cut off may in the moment be an act of judgment, but it's not the end of the story. Now, we should pause here for just a few moments and go slightly beyond what we've been talking about and ask the question, so what? Why does this matter to us today, thousands of years later? Why does it matter to us that Paul is so concerned to persuade a largely Gentile church that God has not forgotten about his love and his promises to Israel? There are, I think, two at least key reasons. First, as Paul has made clear in the section that we very quickly went through. Remembering that we as Gentiles have been grafted in and that Israel can be regrafted should engender humility. Paul is stressing the gracious, undeserved gift of God that has come to us And in some way, it has come to us as yet another way in which God will ultimately redeem his people. This is grace to us as Gentiles. As Paul says in other places, we were far removed from the citizenship of God's people. We were not members of the covenant. We as Gentiles have no right, naturally, as it were, to claim privilege in God's congregation. Indeed, Paul says that if we become arrogant, we never know that God himself might actually cut us off. Now, right here is a very interesting tension. You may have picked up on this as we were thinking through these texts. What can Paul mean at the end of Romans 8 when he says, nothing can separate us from the love of God? Only to then say in Romans 11 that as wild branches grafted in, we should not become proud or we may be cut off. We have to reason a bit beyond what Paul actually says here, but I think his point is still relatively clear. Paul seems to be saying that just as Israel turned away and yet God's promises have not and will not fail, so too we, Gentiles, who now lay claim to God, to this God, and to the very words that he spoke to Israel through the Old Testament, may discover that if we take God's grace for granted, God's love and promise will not fail, just as it hasn't for Israel. But like Israel we might be handed over to the stupor of our own desires. Let God be God and every human person a liar. God's promises will not fail. 
Indeed, it's tempting to reflect on nations who claim their trust in God, falling into blindness and stupor, elevating to roles of leadership the very people who are incarnations of their own idolatries, of power and lust and greed, and thinking that God is the one behind it. He may be, but perhaps not in the way we imagine. If we turn against the stranger in our midst, we may ourselves find that God gives us exactly what we want. But there's a second reason here. Not only are we to be humble before this God, the second reason, and here we return to our main theme, Paul is intent on showing that this God is completely faithful to his promises. We may not always understand this God and his faithfulness, but for Paul, that's okay. In fact, it's even important for us to admit this, because it is only when we recognize our own limitations that we are able to avoid defining God in terms of our own values and desires. Idolatry is always something to worry about. And it can easily become true for us when we project our own desires and ideas, our nationalism, whatever it might be, onto God. It is only in recognizing that this God is someone who is difficult for us to understand, that we are open to hearing this God explain himself and not simply hearing ourselves talking louder about ideas that we'd like to elevate to the level of God. These two lessons from Romans 11, that we dare not become proud and presume upon God and that God is utterly faithful to his promises, call for a response of faith from us. We must trust this God, even when we don't always understand him. This is a word that we need to hear again and again and again. For every single one of us will come to a point in life where we realize we have no control. We do not know what is going on. And yet this God is faithful to his promises. And perhaps you are here this morning never having trusted in this God. The good news goes out to all of us. The word has been preached. This God is worthy of trust. I invite you even today to put your faith in this God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.